seconds flat. Give me up. Put it down, put it This is the second flat running podcast. He's broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh my gosh. Hello again, friends, and welcome to mile 137 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. We're so happy to have you with us here. Happy holidays to all. Phil, Merry Christmas. How are you? Ah, doing well, Travis. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, sir. I am, I'm coming off of maybe the best breakfast I have made in months, if not years, if not ever. Oh, we got to get some details on that. Well, you know, I'm traditionally asking the pancakes, waffles, French toast question. Uh huh. But I flipped and went, and this is a more typical breakfast for me. I went more protein, fat, savory. I grilled a flatbread on top okay. of on top of that. I created a little avocado mash with some sea salt and olive oil. Spread Ooh. that on my flatbread. Covered that in uh, grated some Gruyere cheese. And then on top of that, I put eggs, a little salt and pepper, some fruit on the side, banana, blackberry, blueberry. My energy level's off the charts. I'm going to be best episode of 22. No, you need those carbs to to keep you warm. Phil, oh my gosh. At last check, wind chill coming in at negative... 34. Oh, that's in American degrees, uh, oh. we, <laughs> which I believe is now my term for Fahrenheit. Neg- I'm a Southern, I don't work below 32. Yeah. Negative 34 on the real feel, as they say. So on that note, at the end of the episode, we will be covering some winter running tips. Negative uh, 34. I'll be honest. I stayed in, I stayed inside, <laughs> hit the rower and some yoga this morning. But for those cold days, we will share some advice to help you get through the winter training. Before we do that, it is the best of 2022. This is always one of my favorite episodes, Phil, when we get to the end of the year and, and look back at the shoes, the gear, the training, all the stuff that we enjoyed in the year, that we learned from in the year. To me, this is a fun time of year, too, just to kind of look back over what we've put miles in, the miles that we've done over the past year, like you said, what we've learned. We'll do a little section on books as well, look back through what we've read this past year. And I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say, because a lot of this stuff we kind of talk off and on about, either on the show or on our runs together, but to actually hear what your take is on, uh, on some of these. Yeah, I have rated my best picture books of the year. Uh, stuff that is at a level I can read. Everyone poops was once again, number one on my list. That's always a classic. Um, That's my daughter's favorite too this year. Was that uh, Millie Grace and I are going uh, number one sharing in our reading list. So uh, let's kick it off, Phil, with my favorite category, given what this show is about and what I do for a living. That's right. That is shoe of the year. Would you like to open up, Phil? I'll be happy to, because I am I am curious where you, you sit on some of these, but uh, okay. I'll take the first swing. All right, let um, it rip. My first shoe of the year is going to be the Nike Invincible 2. Mm. Um, this is one that it's in its second model. I'm on my second pair of version two this year. But as I look back through my logs, this was the shoe that I kept coming back to for so much of my running. You know, whether that's something that I wanted for a, just an easy long run, whether I wanted it for just a, a normal daily run, uh, whether I was beat up and wanted, you know, something to just shuffle along in and recover. This shoe really kind of checked all those boxes for me. And really in terms of the construction of it from the, the heel to toe offset, the forefoot rocker, which not as aggressive as something like a Hoka Clifton. Uh, or even as something like a New Balance 1080, but the rocker on this shoe worked really well for me. And then the foam, the Nike's hit magic with the ZoomX foam that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is, um, uses the same foam that Nike has with their Next Percents and the Alpha Fly. It doesn't have a plate, so it's just a, a 
huge slab of their foam. But despite all that, it comes in at a relatively lightweight, but it has a ton of cushion to it as well. So for me, my shoe of the year has got to be the Nike Invincible 2. Great pick, Phil. The hype is big for the Invincible 3 coming out next year. I had the, right? Yeah, that's correct. I had the Invincible 1 on my list last year. The concern here for me has been durability and how I ride in the shoe. I mentioned this in one of our recent shoe, rev- shoe reviews in a way of a comparison. The Zoom X foam I have found as a supinator to wear a little bit uneven. Uh, it will be interesting to see what that looks like in the third iteration as what we're seeing over the Nike racing line like the uh, Vaporfly, for example, is a firming up of that ZoomX compound as compared to what it looked like in your original 4% models to where it is with the forthcoming in the summer or fall, I believe, Vaporfly Next% 3. It looks like with the, uh, the version 3 of the Nike Invincible that with some of the updates they've put to it, it looks like it should be a much more stable ride than it has been in the past. I think that is the thing that lacked uh, when I speak to that uneven ride too with the durability is that just level of inherent stability. Uh, although it has a the wider crash pad that so many shoes have gone to, I agree with you. If, the, if that is firmed up, that could be an, an, another added benefit. Did you have a, a runner-up, Phil? Any others on your list? Yeah, there's, there's a second shoe on here that I, I just started putting some miles in this fall. It came out back in, I believe, August, but it's the trail shoe from Saucony, their Endorphin Edge. Oh, yeah. Also uses Saucony's Super Foam and also has a carbon fiber plate in it, but is tuned for the trail. So it has four millimeter lugs in it. And to me, this has been such a fun shoe to put some, some trail miles in. Much like the Endorphin Pro, uh, it's got a really nice pop to it. Uh, it has a pretty aggressive four-foot rocker, so these are shoes that are very easy to run fast in. They do have some decent traction, though, so it's easy to get some confidence going through the mud and the rocks and over roots and such. This has really been kind of a, I don't want to say a surprise shoe, but the way it rides on the trails has really been a blast. I have had it on foot but have not put any miles in it. The step-in feel was fantastic. At some point here in the not-too-distant future, Phil, we will need to take a deeper dive into what the carbon-plated phenomenon is doing now with trail shoes, because we're uh-huh. starting to see that across brands, and that's going to be an interesting next step in, tra- well, or in trail racing. What else you got, Phil? That's really it in terms of what I've put miles in this year. There's two on here that I have been very, very curious about, but have not put any miles in. Both of them come from ASICs, the, the Nova Blast 3, which has gotten tons of good publicity, uh, and then also the ASICs Super Blast, which to me seems to be a very tight competitor to the Nike Invincible. But like mm-hmm. I said, neither one of those shoes I put any miles in, uh, but I'm very curious to try those at some point. A fitting segue, Dr. Phil. Because Am I just that up right up there for you, Travis? You teed it up, baby, and I'm pulling out the driver <laughs> and letting it we rip. We've not talked about this before. <laughs> no, we did but not. I I would. We did not. I have three shoes ranked in order. Two of them we have done more detailed reviews of in previous episodes, so I won't go back into all the specs and ride experience on those shoes. I have them lined up here on the floor, my, my quite frigid floor. I have to oh. take my hands out from underneath the blankets uh, to, <laughs> uh, to unveil these shoes on camera to Phil for his reaction. Oh, got to take care of those babies. Keep them warm. That's right. Heat these suckers up. Here's number one, Phil. Oh, baby. The ASIC Super Blast is my number one. As I mentioned last time, I'm not sure it will be number one for all. And I believe in part that is going to be because of the price tag. But the ride is exactly what I want out of the shoe in that category. If I want a max cushion shoe. And what I did with my rankings here is I tried to give you three somewhat different shoes. And so in that max cushion category, combining that with the lightweight, the super blast is super fun. I will be getting another one. I've loved it at now probably 150 or so miles on that shoe. Okay. Number two, just for you, Phil, because you just said it, 
Oh, I swear you are perfect. There it is. We, <laughs> we are staying in the ASICs line. ASICs Nova Blast is my number two. In my scale, my ranking of these three shoes here, it's probably the most everyday trainer-ish, even though it's, it's very light. It is perhaps the most versatile of any of these shoes. I suspect Nova Blast 3 will garner a lot of shoe of the year attention across the board. Uh, you're going to see this on the, on the YouTube pages and, and on the, the shoe review websites and on the podcasts. It's really, really good. It didn't run away with that shoe of the year honor for me, though. I, I just overall eliminating cost preferred the super blast feel, but the Nova blast is that one that again, it's a lot of Swiss army knife to it. Yeah. And then my number three, this was actually uh, on our list last year as well. The previous version of this shoe was, was on our list. Uh, I'm going to go to a new balance. This is the fuel cell rebel version three. I would say probably V2, you know, was like first half of the year. It's just the, the Rebel in general, I would put on the list. Well, I just like, uh, V2 got a lot of folks shoe of the year last year. Deservedly so. Fantastic shoe. Version three is, I, I just got into it, actually. I just got a pair. Thank you to the wonderful people at New Balance. And so my experience here so far is limited. But in part, it's on this list because it feels so much similar to what was great last year. I also believe for the average consumer, the more subtle upper design is probably going to be appreciated. It was a little bit more of a bold, kind of a, a almost a, like a racing bowling type stripe. It's a more subtle upper now. The fuel cell foam is fantastic, soft ride. This is your lighter weight, lower to the ground, lower drop option from the shoes that I've presented. And so it would probably also be the best suited for your faster work uh, among the Super Blast, Nova Blast, and Fuel Cell Rebel 3, which are my top three of the year. Uh, this would be a good moment to point out. Uh, again, we have uh, a new sponsor. We'll have the new logo up on the next episode of podcast. It's going to look the same, but the fine print's just going to be a little bit different on who we are presented by. That's Columbus Running Company, columbusrunning.com. You can get all these shoes available from them. So if you don't have access to them locally, feel free to hop online, columbusrunning.com, set you up with this stuff. The shoe I am most excited for, Phil, I think will shock you. There have, been, there have been some rumblings around this shoe from some folks I respect for a few weeks, maybe a couple months now. A couple mainstream reviews have come out for this. That is the new iteration of the Mizuno Wave Rebellion. This is the Wave Rebellion Pro. Uh, okay. Uh -huh. So that's the Mizuno Super Shoe that in its first generation was frankly a miss. Yep. If, it, if it was trying to be a racing super shoe, it really fit more into maybe competing with one some of those the training models like the companions and endorphin speed for example yeah. from Saucony but this is a true max stack super shoe the early reviews from just a few sources are very exciting and oh, they sounds like a phenomenal shoe. Well, they did something crazy innovative. They went above the World Athletics midsole stack limits, but they did so only through the middle of the foot where the uh -huh. stack is not measured. So it hits the marks at the heel and the forefoot yep. to be race legal, but in the midfoot is significantly above the limits. Now, it's a beefy shoe. <laughs> oh, it's, it is beefy. There is some suggestion that a heel striker may ne be negatively impacted by yep. the, sh the shape and ride of this shoe. But I, I'm super excited. I think we have about a month or so before this comes out uh, to see how this competes. Some high level athletes who I trust their opinion have said they will race in this shoe next year over some of the other brand options that we're much more familiar with that have been incredibly successful. So Which, I'm ex excited. To me, that's exciting because Mizuno has basically been out of it 
Game. Right, Phil. Mizuno, along with Asics, dominated yeah. the, the traditional flat market. All right. Yep. The old school racing a decade ago. Well, yeah. If I look back into what I was in you know, 15, 20 years ago, the the Wave Rider, I was in, I don't know how many pairs of that. And then the As- Wave Precision was a fantastic tempo shoe. Same thing for Asics. But then they disappeared for a little while when Nike came out with the next percent and Asics is back on the mark with what they're doing with the Metaspeed stuff. And then now Mizuno is finally getting back in the game. I'm excited to see. My question is going to be like, how does that shoe work for like your 250 plus marathoners that are more heel striking that are landing backwards towards the shoe where that massive cutout is. Uh, it sounds like it works fantastic for the, you know, let's say, 240 plus or faster runners, but how does that cutout affect folks that might not have as efficient mechanics? And I guess we'll see. Well, we will find out soon. Yeah, it's, it's exciting to have Mizuno come back from like the era of the wave Hitagami now <laughs> back on the stage with a racing shoe. Phil, what was your favorite running gear of 2022 that you'd recommend to the folks? Uh, my first one was one you turned me on to was the, uh, the Nike lined half tights. Oh, baby. The beginning of the year, I don't think I had ever run in a pair of half tights. And I was a split short guy all the way through and through. But you started talking about these things and hooked me up with a pair. And man, these things are comfortable. Um, I did a whole bunch of racing in these over the past fall. But as well, just for long runs and workouts, the fit's great. They really don't feel like you have too much on. Uh, but as well, the construction and the feature behind these things of the two gel pockets on the front hips, the two gel pockets on either side of the back hips, as well as a you know larger zipper pocket through the back means that it, it really works well for like a marathon race day short or just for a long run short with, with tons of storage built into it. Hands down, it has to be my gear of the year. That is a fantastic pick, Phil. We had that in a uh, apparel review in the spring in one of our episodes. That's the Nike Dry Fit lined uh, half tights. That's what I've been racing in since it came out. What else? Yeah. Oh, this one is just for you. Salted <laughs> watermelon goose. <laughs> God. <laughs> All right. Let's stop right there. We're going to move on. <laughs> no, no, I, let me justify. Number one, not only are they delicious, and that they are the taste of summer. Phil, I'm in a minus 34 wind chill. I don't need the taste of the summer. I'll, I'll send a couple up there with you, and it'll, it'll bring back some memories of days that were warmer. <laughs> yeah. So, so here, here's where I'm coming on this, is that Martin Gels have really hit, hit the scene the past couple of years in terms of being a cutting-edge technology from a fueling perspective. And that's what I used for the two marathons I did this year and a couple of different races. And I trained with them to a a degree, but the one adjustment that was probably the biggest difference I made to my long runs this year was fueling more Mm -hmm. during those workouts. And that gets expensive taking three, four Martins on a two plus hour run versus having something that's relatively cheap and delicious, like a salted watermelon goo. But that where previously, let's say a two hour run, I might take a gel at the hour mark. Uh, I switched that to where I started taking something every 40 minutes. So then maybe two or three gels over a you know, long run. To me, that made a huge difference in terms of performance towards the end of the run, but also the recovery after the run. Yep. There's some legitimacy to that, that pick there for you. Well, to your point about balancing cost of gel with flavors you like, with also training with what you're going to use during the race. Mm-hmm. I understand the concept of, of alternating those gels or gel flavors throughout those long runs. That does make a lot of sense, but we're, we're getting a bit gratuitous now with your love for salted watermelon flavor, but I, I understand the balance of sweet and salty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I know that you love those. So here's to the folks at goo for coming out with a flavor that keeps Dr. Phil happy. <laughs> Okay, Phil, I finally got a new watch. Oh. I'm still learning it, but so far a huge fan. 
the Coros Pace 2. Now that came out last year. So it's not new in 22. It was out in 21. But as it goes with technology and me being a Luddite, I finally came around to buying one now late in 22. Watch and finally put something on your wrist. Hey, you know what? I, I actually do own a pocket watch, Phil. I, that does not surprise me. Uh, that's that's soon to be a family heirloom. I have no one to pass it down to, but someday maybe your daughter will get it. There we go. <laughs> the Coros Pace 2 is light, simple, intuitive, and inexpensive given all the function it provides. This puppy is 200 bucks at columbusrunning.com. It is probably more than I could ever need and cheaper than the Garmin watches that give you comparable data. I give it an A plus for the battery life, the app interface, and your infinite ability to customize the watch data screens and faces from the app. Super accurate GPS also on a track in track mode, which I realize I know the distance per lap already. But during a workout session, this could have some value in not getting lost in a lap count. And you know that traditionally GPS, when you do workouts on the track, is so far off overestimating how much you've run. Yeah. Phil, now this also includes risk-based power metrics and an accompanying what they call effort pace that is kind of pace adjusted for power. Interesting. So I know you sometimes like to monitor the power from your stride pod. Uh-huh. I, I do think that power can be a valuable metric. So I have options on it for uh, current moving power, three-second average, 10-second average, and 30-second average power. Do you have a preference that you're using when you look at your stride data? I usually run mine off a 10-second average. Yep. Uh, when I first got it, it was set on instantaneous power, and it just bounced around too much to... Uh, give any quality data and even three second power you know, to me especially as you're you know shifting gears and paces or you know going up or downhill was almost too sensitive whereas really what I'm looking for is is my effort right around where it needs to be for the speed that I'm going for the the interval or for the race or what have you and 10 second power for me seems to settle out pretty nicely I set it on 10 second average power as well for the reasons you said. So good to hear we're in agreement there. Also, I went with a nylon band. Koros does offer a silicon band as well. But yeah, mainly the battery lasts. The GPS is really accurate. The buttons are easy to navigate and all the data. With your battery, how often are you having to charge that thing? Or how often do you charge it? Considering using the GPS. And I would say... About an hour a day, probably on average for me right now with my amount of running I'm doing that I'm actually running the GPS. We're recording on Friday. I last charged that on, let's see when I got that. That was, uh, so I would have charged it and used it on Monday. Okay. Okay. I haven't charged since. And I'm at something like 60 some percent still on the, so- I got plenty of life left. Buttons are easy to navigate and all the data I want and more is there in the app after a run. So uh, if you're looking for a new watch, consider the Coro stuff. It's really, really good. Yeah. Phil, within the training spectrum, of course, we talk running here, but we listen to a ton of other folks and what they do on their programs. Phil, you have favorite podcast episodes you listened to this year that inspired your training? Probably the most interesting one to me were a couple uh, by... The same podcast. It's how they train. Oh, Phil, we have the same pick. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling this would be the case. And uh, I'm curious, I'm curious your reasons. I suspect they'll probably be the same episodes, but it is, it's a podcast out of Australia. It's mostly triathlon based, but the guy interviews professional triathletes, runners, coaches, and just as the title says, and asks them about their training. Uh, he had a couple really good episodes this year with coaches Mikel Eden and Olaf Alexander Boo, who are coaches to Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden. Gustav won the Kona World Championship Ironman this year. Christian Blumenfeld won the gold medal at the Olympics in triathlon last year. He got third at Kona. These two guys, these two athletes are pretty much at the top of the triathlon game right now across a 
wide variety of distances too, which is quite impressive. Those are just fascinating episodes diving into the nuts and bolts of what their training looked like. And to me, it, it was a little bit of an insight in terms of the technology they're using. You know, they come out of this Norwegian approach that is really famed for using a lot of lactate, using a lot of monitoring, tightly controlling intensity on almost a daily basis. But as you hear these coaches speak, you know, what you begin to understand is that yes, they're using that technology, but at the end of the day, they're still going off of feel, they're still going off of what the athletes are telling them um, and the feedback they're getting just from a subjective perspective. But as well that you know, it's not the technology that's what has made these guys so successful, that it's just the amount of work that they're doing. You know, they're putting in a ton of miles, they're putting in a ton of work at race specific intensities. And just the dedication that they have to training is on the one hand, incredible, but the other thing that stands out to me, there's two things really, is number one, just the survivorship bias and that mm. yes, these two guys are at the top of the world. And yes, this training is working fantastically for them, but how many folks have been broken by this exact same type of training and this just hasn't worked for? So I think that gives you a little bit of grain of salt that what's working for somebody may not be the best approach for you and that you have to consider what your life circumstances, what your schedule, what your recovery and capacity are for you know, a specific training approach. And number two, just the commitment that these guys have to training. Uh, the other question is what else are they missing in terms of a, a I don't want to say a, a whole and complete life, but they made the comment on one of these episodes that you know, they hardly even went to celebrate after they won Kona because they're getting ready for a race that's seven weeks down the road and need to recover and start preparing for that. So puts a little bit of caution to what we may see on the surface as a you know, fantastic performance. I also have How They Train, two episodes from How They Train. That's Jack Kelly is the host uh, out of Australia. Yep. Uh, for me, it is number one, episode 14, which was an interview from January. It was uh, almost exactly a year ago. He had Julian Moose Spence on. And then uh, the more recent two-part series, as you mentioned, with uh, Olav alexander Vu, the coach of the Norwegian triathletes. And it, you referenced there to the, the transition they're making, having gone from Olymp Olympic distance to Ironman distance, and now they will go back to Olympic distance in hopes of winning at Paris. What an, just a remarkable feat it would be. Yeah. If you're unfamiliar, Moose, he co-hosts what is my favorite weekly running podcast. If you're looking for something to just listen to consistently, in addition to the Seconds Flat Running podcast, of course. <laughs> uh, that's Inside Running, uh, also an Australian uh, podcast. And hey, I got to step out of this for a minute, Phil. Uh, do you have New Year's Eve plans? No, I do not. Oh, okay, I'm making them for you right now. It just struck me now we're talking about Australian running in Tasmania, I believe on the 29th and 31st. So next week at the uh, Tasmanian Handicap, uh, okay. this is Stewie McSwain is uh, Tasmanian. The exciting element here is head to head for the first time over a mile, the duel between Ollie Hoare and Stewie McSwain. Ooh. two of the top handful of mid-distance runners in the world will be together right. in Tassie, as the Aussies call it, <laughs> on the 29th and 31st. So we're going to have to like dial back 20 some hours on the time change. But there you go. Tune in. That, that's going to be watch either the day before or the day after or as it occurs. <laughs> yes, it, that'll be a lot of fun. To bring it back, though, Inside Running, it, it's a great weekly podcast that catches you up on running news and, and tells great stories about training. In the interview with Moose, he is so perceptive about the things we get wrong in training. And he also beautifully articulates why we love to run, as well as those keys to long-term development as a marathoner. This is one I've gone back and listened to more than once. It's, his perspective is just spot on. I've shared it with so many athletes. Go I enjoy ahead. that show and I enjoy his perspective on training and just his approach to the sport. So I have to go back and listen to that just to dive in more specifically to his philosophy because it kind of comes out in bits and pieces during the weekly show, but to have it all together, there will be a good listen. 
Yeah, episode 14. You'll enjoy it, Phil. I've put it on for, for a few long runs and just listened to it all the way through. The interview with Olav Alexander Boo is four-ish hours long. Mm-hmm. And I never imagined I'd spend so much time listening to triathlon conversation. But as you mentioned, the training insights are powerful. And I locked into that first episode while I was traveling and then spent the entire week anticipating part two. There's a ton of nuts and bolts of training and training philosophy and psychology. As you mentioned, Phil, you pointed out that your takeaway was the, as you called it, survivorship bias. I'll counter it a little bit, though, in what I do think can be applied for everyone from the interview, not not necessarily those total quantities of, of work and paces of work, but For me, the underlying theme that he hits over and over again is our focus on what the race demands and training to meet those demands, not training to improve metrics. We've we've gone to this before. Lactate threshold, critical speed, VO2 max, et cetera. We want to be better at racing faster and or farther not at it improving just a variable like critical speed. Yep. That could be a side effect on the path to being a better racer, but remember your purpose. And I do, I do believe that conversation very well covers hitting the demands of the race, focusing on the demands of the race that can apply to everyone regardless of level of skill, not just those who can put in the most work. Yep, absolutely. Phil. What was your favorite race that you watched this year? Ooh, this one was an easy one for me. And it was the Women's Marathon World Championships. Mm. Uh, First, we finally got a World Championships on U.S. soil uh, over there in Eugene, Oregon. But the U.S. women performed so strongly in that meet. Got Sarah Hall at fifth. We have Emma Bates at seventh and Kira D'Amato at eighth. The overall performance of that pack of U.S. women on the international stage was so much fun to watch. Yeah, and a really spectator-friendly course, as you said, on home turf. Uh, That was a great event. The the entirety of the World Championships were so much fun. Oh, absolutely. The world record performances from Elliot Kipchoge in the marathon and Sid Kidd in the 400 hurdles, that her women's world record, uh, seemed like just so obvious to me looking back, but I decided maybe it's too obvious. Mm -hmm. So I I went off the board and picked Richard Ringer's gold medal come from behind marathon at the Euro championships. Ooh, I would not have picked that one. Yeah. That final K was something we so rarely see in marathon racing. That was so exciting that finish. Yeah. His attack was brilliant. Uh-huh. And, and he did it in front of a home crowd in Germany and on mm-hmm. this super warm day. If you watched all the way to the point of maybe like the 26 mile mark, even that deep, you did not think Richard Ringer could win that race. Yeah. And, and then over the final few hundred meters, he pulled it out. It, it was, it was a ton of fun. Phil favorite race that you competed in this year. Oh, this is probably what we would call the second splash showdown. <laughs> oh, geez, that was not my favorite. <laughs> no, um, I, I want to give you grief about beating you yet again, but that's probably too easy. Just the fun that we had on that trip going out there, even though the race wasn't what either one of us hoped for, but just being a part of an event of that nature, sharing it with, with guys that we've put a ton of miles in, you know, that was probably the most fun for me this year. For those of you who are not regular listeners, Phil is referring to California International Marathon in the first of December, first Sunday, excuse me, in December. Yeah, it's a list that, or excuse me, it is a a race that should be on the list for a lot of serious runners out there. That's, it's a good, fun marathon. Absolutely. I'll go with the Gary Bjorklund half at Grandma's Marathon. Oh, beautiful weather. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful weather. Great course. A city that loves and embraces that day. 
I had an amazing Airbnb experience at a little one bedroom cottage on top of a hill overlooking the city and Lake Superior. So the whole event was fun. And despite a very late bus arrival <laughs> to the to the start line, I ran a good time. And uh, so you got there what 15 minutes before the start? At the most, probably. Yeah, it was just enough time to weave my way through the porta potty lines, get up to the front, had a couple guys that I was there with who were in the elite field who had gotten there early, found them, got to say hi, did some leg swings in a stride, <laughs> and <laughs> got in the corral and raced, and boom, it worked out. Uh, <laughs> I am seriously considering going back in June for a rerun or maybe attacking the marathon up there, Phil. And I am opening the invitation to you as a a friend and frankly, someone that I need to beat now after our most recent head to head. (laughs) I'm thinking potentially maybe retiring for next year. Having that victory under my belt, I got nothing else to prove. You should. It's a drop the mic. You're kind of a, it's a George Costanza a joke, a joke landed, get out of the room before you ruin it. <laughs> no, on a serious note, probably the, the other race that I would put on there would be the, the Greenville half back in the, uh, in the spring, I guess, late February of this past year. Similar kind of circumstances in that around here, there's a bunch of guys that I trained with that all did it together. For me, I had a really great day and that I ran a time that I did not expect to see. But as well, at the beginning, I fell in with a group of guys that Dean and JD specifically were rolling along nicely. And it was the kind of scenario where the first couple of times I checked my watch, I felt like we were going a little hot, but the legs felt good and just kind of wanted to roll with it and see what happened. And ended up at the end of the day, was able to hold it and had a really fast time. So that was that was another fun race for this past year. It really, this year to me has been a case of the highs and lows where I had mm. that race. I had, you know, the Sally Frosty foot 30 K last January champion of the Sally Frosty foot. That's right. <laughs> uh, but then also a couple of disappointing finishes at marathons that I, I thought would have gone better, but I think that's just running. Yeah. You did run quite well at Greenville and I'd say my theme of the year is pretty similar. A couple really, really nice performances and one where I expected to crush it and couldn't even finish. So yeah, Phil, it doesn't have to be new, but what was the uh, favorite book you read this year? Oh, man, I got I got two on here. Okay. Um, one is one that you recommended to me, and I'll get to that in a second. But the first one is titled Wanting, and the subtitle is The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. The author's Luke Burgess, but it's basically a, a simplified version of his analysis of the work of a philosopher named Rene Girard. The main argument behind the book is that desire is mimetic or that we basically imitate what other people want, which was a pretty insightful book to me. And it also kind of challenged me and that wasn't necessarily challenged from an external desire standpoint. The area that this really challenged me was where internal desires come from. And what I mean by that, and to kind of bring it to running thinking of some of the like the goals that I have from a performance perspective, like qualifying for Boston or running sub three, are those goals coming internally because I just want to do those things or are they a function of the circles I run in that, you know, a lot of the guys that I run with have hit those times or have done those races and it, I, I want to be like them kind of thing. Yeah. So, so that's, it sounds like a very interesting read. But also as an aside, an important note that you've hit is intrinsic motivators that are truly intrinsic are the ones that will ultimately drive us to the most success within running, whatever success means to the individual. It's not those external motivators. And uh, that's a great point to reflect on as we move into the new year and look to set goals for the new year. What really drives us? What are, what are the ones that we want, both from an accomplishment perspective and from a joy perspective, not those that are maybe put upon us by the outside? Yeah, I still don't really have an answer. You know, I still want to run sub three. I still want to run Boston. But it also made me think that, to me, those are more just surrogate measures in that I want to be able to run enough to have the fitness to be able to do that kind of stuff. Mm. I want to be consistently doing long runs because I enjoy them. Doing that consistently will lead to those kind of performances. So it, it 
really just raised more questions than answers, but was a, a very interesting book for me this year. What's number one on your list? Mine is, I believe, published a few, maybe five, six years ago now, but I just got a hold of it this year. It's called The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey. And per- perhaps it's a recency bias of it being the most recent book I read, but it was immensely fascinating. The silly, can't put it down kind of phrase, uh, as someone who enjoys history, it certainly struck that note of couldn't put it down, read through this thing very quickly. The author, his name is Rinker Buck, and his brother became the first people in over a hundred years to traverse the full Oregon Trail by wagon. Wow. Yeah, it's it's super neat. It's sentimental and emotional while also weaving history with our current culture. And it shows what real Americans are still like today. That, that was part of the beauty of the story, the people that he ran into. We see the headlines or the social media depictions of, of modern American culture. And in reality, the people that the Bucks met along the way are a reminder of the goodness and selfless selflessness and caring of most people in our world. So yeah. it's it's an incredible overlap of the geography, the history, the landscapes, that whole story, what our preservation efforts have been like, and then the social factors that we see today. It's just great. It's uplifting, but it's also great history and great writing. And before we go to your second one, I don't have a number two. So quickly, I'll give an honorable mention. This is a reread. Okay that I first encountered last year and just finished again. That is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I've been on the list for a while. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. I must thank my friend John for this one. He's a listener. So John, thank you. We're thinking of you. Our, our world is so busy. There is so much distraction and disconnection, so much failed multitasking too much focus on insignificant and petty aspects of our existence. And John Mark Comer's book is a faith-based approach to slowing down, refocusing, and, and really moving to a place of improved emotional and spiritual well-being. And I'll come back to it again probably next year. It's great. Phil, what was number two for you that I recommended? I'm excited to hear. That's right. No, this was uh, The Splendid and the Vile. Oh, I- Yeah. An account of Churchill's first year as prime minister through the the bombing of London during World War II. Number one, just from the historical perspective of just living under that horror of being bombed night after night after night. Number two, looking at the, the courage and the leadership that Churchill had during that, that time. And that he's, he's basically a new leader. He's of course, under assault from a foreign power, but also as the war continues, being questioned at home as well from a a leadership perspective. But also it gets into kind of some of the details of everyday life, granted of aristocratic England, but looking at despite all of that, that life still goes on, that people were getting married, people were having children, that they were still going to work, they were still going to social engagements, despite all the chaos that was going on around them, was really just an insightful look into a part of history that I hadn't read too much about. Great book. Larson has so much great stuff. I'm excited for him to come out with something new. It's been a little while, so we'll see what he does next. I'm glad you enjoyed that, Phil. Yeah. I read a ton of sports books this year and a lot of really good ones, but none of them that made my list. So let's transition back to the running then. And in in the year in review with, with the biggest training lessons that we take from 2022. Phil, why don't you go ahead first? To me, the biggest takeaway was shown really out of the two marathons that I did not succeed at and was the importance of just time on feet for these longer races. You know, we often think of training as number one, primarily inducing cardiovascular adaptations, maybe secondarily producing neuromuscular adaptations, but there's a component that from a performance over longer distances, and I will probably get to this over an episode in the coming year, but looking at training or durability of performance in that, you know, if I look at my training metrics, my 10K uh, comparison, my half marathon comparison indicates that it should be easy for me to run X time over the next distance. 
but I just did not have the time on feet to be able to express that in a race. That I wasn't limited in either of those marathons by cardiovascular fitness, but it was more just the legs did not have the, the durability to them. Yeah, that's a significant point in trying to extrapolate from 10K and half marathon performances to the marathon is for most of us a fool's errand. Yeah. And you are hitting a, something tangentially related to one of my two big training lessons. So I'll speak to the one that's a more specific training perspective from this year. That is the approach that was rewarded this year, both for me and a number of the athletes we work with, was an emphasis on total time at a stimulus. Then the transition to improving that stimulus with longer reps and then under a state of fatigue. So for example, half marathon pace or threshold work, let's just use more generally building with say three minute reps up to a workout that I love ultimately is 10 by three minutes of work at half marathon pace with maybe a minute easy in between, and maybe then trying to reduce that recovery, taking that as opposed to Phil's beloved 20 minute tempo run. Yeah. And the 10 by three minute example, we've gotten 10 more minutes of total time at that effort. That is one of the key traits we see to go back to what you were referencing in the Norwegian program discussed in how they train, but also that we've talked about here with the, uh, the Ingebrigtsen brothers training, European cross champion, most recently Jakob Ingebrigtsen, but the dominant miler in the world and, and perhaps the best 5k runner in the world right now as well. Yeah. Just getting that total time. Then once we're comfortable with that, potentially extending the reps to things like six by five minutes or five by six minutes or four by eight minutes so that it is a similar total volume, total time, but it's a bit more race-like in subjecting yourself to that stimulus for longer because three minutes at half marathon pace should not be particularly challenging. Right. But five, six, or eight minutes might be a little bit more so. As we pull it out, that could ultimately go to a mile or two miles or however you break up the the repetition. Then the next piece to that is working it into the end of a naturally progressive longer run as we try to combat fatigue and, as you mentioned, work on durability. That approach has reaped some positive results again in 2022. Like if I look at my own build going into grandma's as an example, that's one of the glaring points when I just lay it out like in spreadsheet form in the training of just the volume of work at those paces that I got in. The second big one, and this was reinforced in my recent marathoning experience, just like yours, uh, your takeaway was. Never forget the intersection of your physical training with your hormonal well-being. I put in a ton of great workouts and mileage. I'm somewhere at like 4,300 miles for this year. It's it's a lot even by my traditional standards. And I've been around 4,000 before, but this is, I believe, the most. But I also simultaneously this fall and in key periods of the fall, right before the marathon, fell short on sleep which is a variable that I normally crush because I'm willing to go to bed before nine o'clock and not think about it twice, but also then the interplay among fitness and like fitness in a running sense and the endocrine and nervous systems striking that balance. Uh, Maybe by running less next year, I might be able to do better or maybe running less at the right times. I might be able to do better and emphasizing other things could, could create that better balance. Well, and I think just understanding where like the training stress compounds with stress from other aspects of life. That's exactly right. I I did not, if we were to use your minus two to plus two system of like scoring the days, probably at key points, even though I was hitting a bunch of plus two workouts, it started to slide to easy days, recovery days, where I'd normally want to see zeros and ones and, you know, just feeling decent. Yeah. Probably some minus ones stacking there because of the other variables. Yeah. Phil, quickly before we wrap then, uh, mainly because my hands are getting really cold 
let's <laughs> let's move to winter training tips this next couple months and in particular it, right now much of the country is in this deep freeze but over the next couple months these are some tools that you can use to better train through the cold my my simple saying to this starts with don't fear have the gear yeah all right and it's it's a two piece thought phil one is don't fear the weather in general, before we even get to the gear that can support it. Don't fear this weather in general, knowing that you very well might have to race on a day like this, right? That, that is to some degree a year-round phenomenon with in the summer, you might have to train in the heat. At any time of the year, you might have to train in the rain, but you could end up in a shockingly cold race or snow, You know, especially if you have a target race in a February, March, April, depending on where you are in the country. So while when we get significantly below zero, at this point, you have to do the cost-benefit analysis and think, maybe I just need to get on the treadmill, or maybe I need to do a different activity. Generally, I would say prepare yourself to go outside and run outside productively because you might face that on race day. Yeah. And so as you do that, another key piece here is just value consistency. It's the most telling metric and how successful you are as a runner over time as a distance runner, consistency above all. So value it right now. And that might mean a lot of days might have to be very easy given the weather, but getting out and having the gear to get out is critical. So I'm going to do a little bit of like favorites of 2022 now wrapped into this with yeah. my favorite uh, winter running gear, the Merino wool socks. That is my favorite piece of winter running. When I get out in merino wool socks, especially when, you know, I normally wear the no-show sock, but when I can come up to the quarter or maybe even like the mini crew, <laughs> oh, I love it. I'll often That's wear, cozy. it is cozy, Phil, yeah. I, I often wear the Njinji socks, the, the toe uh -huh. socks, but, but the Features Elite merino wool stuff is, is great this time of year. Great temperature control, added bonus, it tends not to smell like the other stuff that you run in. So that's nice. With that, do you do anything different from a shoe size perspective to fit a thicker sock that you might be using? I don't. It's a good question. I tend to find that folks overemphasize that a little bit when they try shoes on. That sock, it's a very minimal factor when it's a true running sock. Yeah. If you're putting on some super thick hiking sock, yeah, that's a different story. But yeah. for a running sock, even a merino wool or a thicker trail sock, I don't think that affects shoe sizing much. Yeah. I recently got what might be my favorite all time, all time, Phil, oh. all time. Okay. Winter running piece. Until this point, I would say it's probably something I've had for, geez, six or eight years now. I don't even know when I got that. Patagonia did a very lightweight vest that had like a very a breathable back to it. And they, they only did one generation of it before it changed. And it's really more of like a climbing, hiking kind of thing now, but it was a great, great trail running vest that that's been my favorite thing for years. I'm going right up on that scale though. It is called the Asics Men's Winter Run Long Sleeve Hoodie. Okay, so it's a, it's a relatively thin layer. The back is breathable. Uh -huh. uh, it's got a chest pocket. And also a nice feature to the chest pocket is it's a zip down pocket, which sometimes when you have gloves and stuff and you're struggling with the, with the zippers, trying to pull that up and yeah, manipulate yeah. it is a little more challenging. It's got the little things you can pull over your thumb to extend the sleeve out towards your fingers, right? Uh -huh. It actually has a little gap for your watch too. Oh, nice. Well, theoretically, I do want to speak to the people at ASICS about this very briefly. They only put it on the left arm. Some of us are left-handed and wear, <laughs> wear our watches on the right side. So I actually don't benefit from this one, but it's just got this little slit that you can pull around your watch. So now uh, your left arm just gets cold on that side. You know what, what's great about it, though, is it's not even noticeable because the way it folds, you know, it's something that you have to open yourself. But yeah. if you were to pull the sleeve down over your thumb, it would be in the perfect spot for your watch. So that you don't have to put the watch on the outside above. Right. It's a top layer, but not really a, a jacket uh, because right. it's still relatively thin, thin and it's a, a quarter zip. But another nice piece to this is the zip area comes up around the chin to keep you warm on the neck. And right. the hood you put on does not 
bounce around. It's very fitted to the head. So if you're in a situation where say it's snow, sleet, those kind of elements, you could wear the baseball cap style running hat, uh-huh. have the bill to keep the elements out of your face, put the hood over that. It'll stay snug and keep you warm. So that's a nice balance. I love this thing. It's fantastic. So what, what temperatures would you wear this thing in? Because to me, I see a running shirt that has the hood on it. And considering I might see five runs in the 20s each year, yeah, that's pretty useless. But you know, you're negative 30 there now. So I could see where <laughs> that might be, might be useful up there. Yeah, for sure. So uh, you're leading to another point I had later on, but I'll go ahead with it right now. Think about having a mental inventory, or I guess you could write it out if you need to when it comes to this time of year, especially if you're in a place with a longer winter. Have a mental inventory of what temps you go to certain types of layering. Mm -hmm. And also what race temps you do that. I want to prepare for races in the winter or faster sessions in the winter assuming that once I get started, I'm going to feel 10 degrees warmer than whatever it says outside. I will warm up for that activity with many layers on, but I'm going to peel down to layers, assuming that let's say, for example, it's, let's say 38 degrees. I find that to be an almost perfect temperature for a fast session or a race. I would love to marathon at that temperature. That might be a little lower than most people. But at that point, if it's race day, I'm going to have my gloves. I'll probably have a hat. I'm still going to go with a singlet, but maybe I'm going to go arm sleeves. Mm-hmm. And then if it drops a little below that, maybe it's not the singlet, but it's a shirt with sleeves. Then if it drops a little more, maybe I put the tights on. So back to your initial question about when I would wear this. Well, let's say it's in the 30s. This could be something I wear in my warmup and take off. 20s or 30s, that might be. But if it's you know, 20 degrees and below, this is a top layer that I'm going to run in on cold days. Absolutely. And because it's breathable, vented out of the back, I'm not going to overheat in it really, right. but it's going to do, do a good job keeping my core, vital organs, that kind of stuff warm. Your point in terms of having ranges of what you wear outfits during, I think is, is really underrated of knowing that you know, if it's over 40 degrees, this is what I wear. If it's 35 to 40, this is what I wear. I always feel like I have to calibrate that at the beginning of each fall as it gets colder and colder and I have to get comfortable. But then also thinking of it in terms of this is what I usually do for, you know, an hour run or something with maybe a little bit of light work, or maybe I shift it down to the next more comfortable range if I'm just going out for an easy 30 minute recovery run. Right. Knowing what you like to wear when, but kind of having an inventory of what fits in those categories. Yeah, absolutely. Another recommendation, most of the brands, Asics, New Balance, Craft, they make great tights. And I'm a tight guy over a jogger. Yeah. I will say if you're, if you got a faster session, for me, it's tough to beat those turnover tights from Tracksmith. If you got to move in in these colder temperatures, which leads me to another point. We've discussed this in context of summer training tips as well. Even if you have a race soon and are in a specific period of training, let's say you're going to Houston for their marathon. It's a huge race coming here in January. Shift the emphasis from pace to effort in the coldest weather. Don't make a mistake straining to hit challenging marks in adverse conditions get the stimulus and survive to attack another day. It's the longer term win over the greed of, well, I got a marathon coming. I got to run miles at marathon pace this weekend. And it's eight degrees, for example. It's just not worth the squeeze. Think about the effort, make the, the decision that's positive and productive in the longer term. Another point could be a season of emphasis on weights and or cross training. Can we use strength work here more than we have at other times of the year? Perhaps it's a weakness in your running repertoire that we need to focus on more, but there's imbalances that develop when we just run. And again, survivorship bias, right, Phil? Some folks can get away without the strength supplementation. Others really need it. Could moving to a cross train, like swimming at the indoor pool, 
maybe you have a stationary bike at home that you enjoy, the rowing machine. Could you get more joy there, but also the benefit of avoiding the burnout of running all the time and the, the, the mental piece that comes with, how am I going to get out in sub-zero temperatures and, and run? So there is a limit to my earlier comment about don't fear the weather to when it's like, is it even productive anymore? When I get to that unproductive point, let's not go outside. And that varies from person to person and areas of the country. But also from, again, a long-term development perspective, perhaps a season of cross-training that still keeps aerobic levels high and improving combined with some strength work so that, uh, as we've said before, you are developing the chassis and not just the engine leaves you prepared and then excited and enthusiastic for what's coming in the spring. You see that a lot with like uh, elite ultra running these days of the guys that you know, live in these cold mountain environments, but that switch over the winter to these ski mountaineering races and don't hardly do any running, but they well, come out in the spring and are crushing these hundred milers and on very little run specific training, but don't underestimate the value of an off season where you're doing something a little bit different. And from a, a track and field perspective, take a guy like Ben True. An, an all-American in college and cross-country and an all-American in cross-country skiing. Yeah. Yes, it's going to take some time to transition back into your running, but the aerobic gains you can make are, are tremendous. And to end, I'll reiterate, leave the winter in a place where you're excited about whatever the next challenge is, not where you're dreading it. This, Phil, is why I still haven't signed up for anything coming out of our marathon at the beginning of the month. My enthusiasm for training is high right now. I look forward to get back, getting back into it. And I'm not just going to throw something on the calendar to force it. I'm going to pick that race that although I think I could go run one well now, I'm going to find one that I'm really excited about running and I'm going to go attack it with that enthusiasm unknown to mankind for whenever it comes up, spring, summer, fall, next winter, whatever it might be. Yeah. Phil, it has been a wonderful 2022 with you, my friend. Oh, Merry Christmas, my friend. Merry Christmas. I look forward to some sort of uh, live stream, you, me, and the Tasmanian Handicap Mile next week <laughs> to watch the racing down under. We are looking forward to what lies ahead in 2023. Happy New Year to everyone. We will see you soon on mile 138 of Seconds Flat.